Well, good morning, everybody. I think first service might have been a little bit louder. What? Say what? No, no. Let's try it again. Good morning, everybody. Much better. All right. Well, my name once again is Matt Dietz, and I am the high school pastor here at Cannon Hills Friends Church. I'm very excited to be with you all this morning. Very honored. Uh, Pastor Larry asked me to take the second part of this series. We're in the new series called Honoring God. And Larry talked about how we really do honor God in all the experiences and all the different things that happen in our lives. And today we're going to be focusing on how we honor God with our whole being, with all of our being. But before we get there, I want to tell you all a story. There's a story about a little boy who's in his backyard playing baseball while his parents sat on the patio and watched. Now, as most little boys during this time happen to do, playing baseball in your backyard while your parents are sitting on the patio watching means you're playing baseball by yourself. So the little boy is the hitter. He's the first baseman, the second baseman, the outfield, shortstops, the catcher. He's all these. So he tried to hit the ball and then try to run as fast as he could to catch the ball that he had just hit, but he never quite make it. So the little boy, he kind of gets some energy up, and he grabs his bat, he grabs the ball, he takes and he pauses for a moment, and he says, I'm the greatest hitter. Throws up in the air, and he swings the bat, (laughs) ball hits the floor. Being the only player, he's also the umpire, so he sadly says, strike one. So he picks up the ball, looks at it for a second, takes a look at the bat, pauses, takes a deep breath, and he looks at where he's going to hit it. And he's able to take it, and just before he throws it, he says, I am the greatest hitter in all of baseball. So he throws it in the air and he swings just a little bit harder this time. <laughs> Hits the floor. Kind of sad, he says, strike two. So he grabs the ball and he picks it up and he feels it. He's looking for tears and rips. He takes a look at his bat and he kind of knocks it, makes sure that it's, it's okay and it's, it's full and it's ready to go. And he pauses and one last time. He takes a big breath and he says, I am the greatest hitter in the history of baseball ever. He throws in the air and he swings a little bit more power this time. <laughs> Hits the floor. Strike three. Little boy puts down the bat, sits down next to the ball, and he starts to think about what had just happened. Now, his parents, being the good parents, they're probably like, he's missed three times now, but I feel bad. I probably should go and console him like, oh, it's okay. You'll get it next time. So as they're getting ready to get up and go and talk to the little boy, the little boy gets up and he turns around and has the biggest smile on his face. And this kind of catches the parents off guard. They're like, whoa, why are you smiling? You just struck out three times. I know horrible parenting advice, but, you know, why are you smiling? And the little boy looks at them and with joy in his face, he says, guess what? I just struck out the greatest hitter in the history of baseball. I must be the greatest pitcher in the history of baseball. Right? Attitude is everything, isn't it? Attitude can make the difference between a good day and a bad day. Attitude can make a difference between a good relationship or marriage and a bad relationship or a bad marriage. I'd even go as far to say that attitude can make a difference between living a good life and living a bad life. Chuck Swindoll, he puts it this way, and he says, words can never adequately convey the incredible impact of our attitude toward life. The longer I live, the more convinced I become that life is 10% what happens to us and 90% of how we respond to it. And that's so true. Most of what we do in life is based off of how we respond to things that come up to it. Have you ever considered that your attitude affects your worship experience? When you come into this room, what's on your mind, what's on your heart, the things that you have gone through in the morning will affect how you come before and how you worship the Lord. 
And it's really important that we take this moment to understand this. You see, in Psalms 27, David has the opportunity to express his attitude towards the Lord. In the context of this situation, David is being attacked. David and his armies are being oppressed by their enemies. And so David, in a time when most of us would run away out of fear and anxiety and panic, David actually turns and he says, I'm going to go closer to the Lord during this time. Look what he says in scripture. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. This is remarkable. Most of us would run away when facing our enemies. David was the king of Israel. David was the leader of a massive army. David was also a preacher of God's great word. Having any one of these responsibilities, let alone three, would be more than most of us could bear. But David, he takes this, he sees all of this that he has to do, and he says, God, I know that I am nothing without you. And so he runs to God saying, God, I know you're going to provide for anything that comes against me. David was remarkable in this aspect. So how does David hold it together? You see, David does so by maintaining an attitude of worship. David had a heart of worship. Well, that sounds pretty and it sounds like it's in a nice package, you know, tied with a bow and ribbon and it looks good. But what does that mean? What does it mean to have a heart of worship, to live a life of worship? Think about this. You've been given a piece of paper. And on this piece of paper, you've been told that you can only write 36 words, a little bit more than Twitter, a little less than Facebook. Okay? You have 36 words. And on this piece of paper, you're to write down the most important message you could ever tell anybody in your life. 36 words. What message would you write? This piece of paper doesn't just go to your family doesn't just go to your friends or your relatives, your neighbors, your coworkers. It's also going to go to people whom you've never even met yet. Let's say that you were to go away on a journey where you're out of communication for 20 years, and this is the last message, the most important thing that you could tell somebody before you leave. What would you write down? What message would you say is the greatest message you could ever tell somebody? See, in the New Testament, Jesus has the opportunity to do this. Jesus has the opportunity to tell mankind God's greatest message. And it's found in the gospel of Mark. It says the first of all of the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. This is the most important message that all of mankind could hear. And Jesus summed this up by saying, Worship God with all of your being. Now, this is also reinforced in the context of the Old Testament as well. You see, in the Old Testament, God had worked with Moses amongst the Israelites to give them the close to the same message in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love your God with your heart, your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. With all of these aspects, this is how we're supposed to worship the Lord. You see, this passage from Deuteronomy, it's called the great Shema. In Hebrew, this word Shema means to hear or to listen. And God is saying that this is the greatest message that you could ever hear. This is the greatest message that you could ever listen to. It says, this is the message I want you to tell your children. This is the message I want you to tell your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers. This is the message I want to be written on your hearts when you get up in the morning and when you go to bed at night. This is the message I want you to have on your heart as you go throughout the tasks of the day. What is that message? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
all your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. In this great commandment, God is telling mankind, he says, I want you to understand who I am. And I want you to love me with all of your heart, with all of your emotion, with all of your relationships, everything that you are, I want you to worship me. Not because God's this prideful, arrogant God. He's saying, no, it's because I have everything that you need. And so I want you to worship. I want you to bring all of who you are before me so I can take care of you. The shorter version of this commandment is know me and worship me with all of your being. Now, the New Testament versions in Matthew, Mark, and Luke may differ a little bit from this version in Deuteronomy, but the message and the focal point is all the same. Worship God with all of your heart, with all of your being. Love God with all of your being. So that's a weird question. How do we love God? Once again, loving God sounds like this great theory. It sounds like a great presented package, like a gift at Christmas. Yeah, we can say, oh yeah, I love God, but it's just empty words. What does loving God actually mean? What does loving God truly look like in our lives? How do we love God and worship him with all of our being like David did? You see, before we can understand how that happens, we have to understand the context of what David's going through in this situation. King Saul had been the king over Israel for the last 40 years. Saul was the first human king over Israel. God had seen his people in slavery in Egypt and they were being persecuted and pushed down and they were crying out to the Lord saying, God, help us, God, help us. So God sends his deliverer and Moses to rescue them, to pick them out of their slavery from Egypt, move them across the wilderness and then to plant them into the promised land. And in the promised land, he says, this is the land that I have set apart for you. Yeah, there may have been some difficult travels in between. They may have complained all the time. But he says, now that you're here, I'm going to give you everything that you could ever possibly want. God says, I'm going to be your king. I'm going to be your judge. I'm going to be your provider, your strength, your defender, your warrior. I will take care of you here. And the people of Israel are like, yeah, this is great. But as time went on, they started to look out. And they started to see the other nations. They're like, whoa, that nation is becoming powerful. That nation is becoming reputable. That nation is gaining status and power. How are they doing that? Well, it's because they have a king. Not just a king like we have our king, but they have a king who has a face. I'm not saying God doesn't have a face because that'd be creepy. But, you know, a king who has a face. And they're saying, well, we have God who says he's going to be our king, our judge, but we can't see him. He's a faceless king to us. And so all the other nations started pushing Israel down, making fun of them and mocking them, saying, you don't have a king. You don't have a champion who goes before you like we do. So the Israelites started to complain. God, we want a king. God, give us a king. God, we want a king. We don't just want any king. We want a king who's good looking. We want a king who's imposing. We want a king who's charismatic. Somebody who we can look at and be like, yeah, that's our guy. This is the king. And God says, you don't want a king, trust me. I'm telling you now, you do not want a king. A king will only put you back into slavery. A king will only tax you. A king will only oppress you rather than try to free you and think about your needs. You do not want a king. But the people are still looking out and they're saying, God, we want to be like these other nations. God, give us a king. And they demanded it again and again and again of God. So God says, fine, you want a king? I'm going to give you a king. 
and he puts King Saul into place. And on the outside, King Saul had everything that they wanted in a king. He was good looking. He was charismatic. He looked the part of a king. But on the inside, he was missing everything he needed to be in a king. He didn't have a heart. He didn't have a soul. I'm not saying it's like the tin man without a heart, but you know, he didn't have these aspects that a king truly needs. On the inside, King Saul proved to be shallow. He proved to be rootless and self-obsessed. And so God sees this and Saul starts to turn away from God. Saul starts to disobey God and go a different path than what God had prepared for him. And God approaches him and says, I had this amazing, wonderful kingdom and power and reign that was lined up for you. I was gonna do glorious things for you, but because you've disobeyed, because you've strayed away, I'm going to forcefully remove it from you. And I'm going to give it to someone who is deserving of it. And so he raises up a prophet to go and search amongst all the lands. And this little tribe in Israel, an unnoticed little shepherd boy, is found to be the next king. And his name is King David. King David had a heart and a soul, which King Saul did not. But wait a second, Matt. Didn't we learn a couple months ago by Pastor Larry that King David proved to be a great sinner himself? Wasn't King David the one who lusted after another man's wife? Wasn't King David the one who abused his power to commit adultery with her and then got her pregnant? And then when she became pregnant, he panicked and had her husband sent off to war to get killed. And then after he was dead, went in and married her so that way it would pretend like the child was born after their marriage. Wasn't King David the one who took a census of the people against God's will and God brought judgment amongst the people? How on earth is David this man of God? How on earth does David have a heart of God? I don't understand where you're going with, Matt. Are you sure you're preaching this right? What's going on? But the interesting thing that we need to know is scripture says that God declares of David that he was a man after his own heart. That David was a man after God's own heart. Yeah, David sinned. Yeah, David disobeyed. Yeah, David did all of these things, but he repented and he returned to God. What truly set David apart was not because he was perfect, not because he was without sin or this great king, but because of how he consistently and how he relentlessly chose to live before God despite his frailty and his own weaknesses. Can you say that of your life this morning? Do you consistently and do you relentlessly choose to live before God despite your own frailty and your weaknesses? Or do you let them get the better control of you? Are you bogged down by the things of this life? It's too much for me to bear. I don't trust in the Lord. But God says, come to me, worship me, and I will give you what you need. See, David is uniquely honored, not because of who he is, but because he did sin, because he recognized his sin. He learned from it. He grew from it, and he didn't repeat it. David repented from his sin. And David had a heart that ultimately always led him back to a life of worshiping God. And that's why we focus on David. We're talking about how do we have a heart of worship? How do we live a life of worship? Because we need to move our heart to a point where we are consistently and relentlessly choosing to live before God, no matter the circumstances in our lives. That's what it all comes down to. So this morning, we're going to take a guide briefly through David's heart to understand how we too can live a life of worship, how we too can worship God with all of our being. If you take a look at your outline, the very first thing that we need to know is we need to recognize we're called to know God. We are called to know God. And this is so important that we spend time in scripture daily. 
We go to scripture for guidance and encouragement and direction, but we also go to scripture so we can understand who God is. So we can understand God's attributes and get to know him better. God, through scripture, he reveals himself that he doesn't have any needs, that he's complete, he's self-sufficient. And he says that I don't have any needs and I want to take care of your needs. If you come and you worship me, and I'm very protective of worship, I want you to worship me alone. Worship me and I will give you everything that you could ever ask for and even more. But you got to know me. You need to know who I am. The second thing he says that we see from David's heart is not just knowing God, but we also need to recognize that we are created to worship God. Mankind was created to worship God. Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, after 12 chapters of introduction in the book of Ecclesiastes, he put it this way. It says, now all has been heard, and here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all of mankind. See, this is part of our makeup of being created in the image of God. We are created with the capacity and we are created with the need to worship God. We are created with the capacity and the need to worship God. See, being created in the image of God means that we can give him the glory. And once we start to worship God, we truly do start to glorify his name. And in glorifying his name, we fulfill our most important need, which is our spiritual needs. You see, most of us, we think of two types of needs, our physical needs, water, food, and shelter that we need for survival. That's great. Let's live. We also have our emotional needs, love, hope, and understanding that we need for emotional health. But we always overlook that third type of need that we do need, and that's our spiritual need. And our spiritual need comes by knowing God and understanding that we were created to worship God in all these things. Scriptures tell us all throughout the Bible how we are to worship God. The great Shema we talked about a few minutes ago, it sets the framework for how this is done. Worship God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. The Ten Commandments are God's guidelines given to his people on how to worship God. These are the things you should do. These are the things that you shouldn't do. This is what you will do if you love me. It's all throughout Scripture. But we need to know that we cannot worship God and meet our spiritual needs on our own terms. Said again, we cannot meet our spiritual needs on our own. Only God can fulfill the spiritual needs in our lives. See, because of sin, we are incapable of meeting the spiritual need on our own. We cannot do it at all. Our works, our efforts, our sacrifices will never truly offer worship apart from the work of the Lord. And God in his redeeming grace, he sent his son down to die on the cross to give us a chance to worship him and recognize him for who he is. Because he loves us. And he says, because I loved you, I want you to love me back. Because I have so much in store for you if you will just know who I am and you will just learn how to worship me. Learn how to be connected. Have you ever wondered why there are so many different religions in the world? So many false religions out there? You think that instead of people practicing and following these false religions, they would do what the wisest man on earth, Solomon, told people to do. Eat, drink, and be merry. Because that's what ultimately, besides fearing God, that's the meaning of life. Eat, drink, and be merry. So if worshiping God isn't the answer, the other answer must be to do these things. But you see, people create false religions, false worship, because they have a need to worship God. There's a need inside all of us to worship God. 
And these false religions, they exist all over the world in all different cracks and corners, and they take on different forms and different functions, but all of them are in some part mankind's attempt at worshiping a God. It's not God saying, here it is for you. This is what you need to do to worship me, and this is what I will give you in return. It's mankind trying to say, well, I'm going to choose what I want to worship, how I choose to worship. And we're not truly worshiping the Lord. We're not truly loving God with all of our hearts. So when we take a look at this, we recognize that we are commanded to love God. That's what scripture says. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. But when we do this, we start to recognize that we love God through worship. We start to manifest our love for God as an expression of worship. But worship, even though it's just a few letters, it's a very difficult word to define. It's a big word. And it's been contrasted and constrained based off of our own limitations of human understanding and human uh, language. But this morning, I want to give you a couple glimpses of worship that maybe you haven't thought about before. A couple glimpses of worship of how it's developed over the years. You see, in the Hebrew, this word worship, it means shaha which means to bow down. It means to prostrate oneself, to humble oneself before the Lord. In the Greek, this word is proskuneo, which means to kiss the hand of one who is revered. It involves giving awe and adoration to God. In the English, this word comes from the Anglo-Saxon word worthyaskype, which is someone who is highly valued or highly, uh, who has worth or highly worthy. It's about declaring the worth of God. And if you were to look up worship in the dictionary, it comes from the word worth and ship, which means an attempt to express the worth of an object or a person. You see, worship means something different to everybody, whether it be bowing down to the Lord or confessing on adoration to him or glorifying him for his worth or trying to find a way just to bring God love. It means something different to all of us based off of our experiences, our situations, our circumstances in life, it means something different to each and every one of us. Now, I want to share with you this morning what my definition, my working definition of worship is. My definition has been defined by my experiences. It's been defined by how I view God. And I'm not saying this should be the definition that I want you all to take in regards to worship, but it's just another definition that's interesting to think about. And I had it actually printed out on your outlines. And it says that worship is our loving attempt to begin to approximate the incalculable and immeasurable worth of God. Let me say that again. It's our loving attempt to begin to approximate the incalculable and the immeasurable worth of God. We can't do it. We cannot truly comprehend the worth of God. We cannot truly understand the fullness of who God is. And so we make our loving attempt to recognize God for his worth, to recognize what he's done in our life, to recognize how he is moving inside of us by our worship. Is that what your worship reflects? When you think about how you worship the Lord, are you moved to see what he has done for you? Or is it just this corporate experience that's done in the context of the church? It's a very interesting thing to think about. So how do we learn to love God with all of our hearts? How do we learn to worship God with all of our beings? To do so, we need to take a look once again at God's most compacted scripture to mankind, the most important message. Once again, in the gospel, it says this. It says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, with all of your strength. See, God has made us this complex, 
interwoven and interdependent being. And we can never truly understand who we are or know what our purpose is because of our minds, our bodies, and our souls. They're all interrelated. And so God says, you truly want to worship me? You truly want to know what love is? Well, then worshiping God involves a fourfold pattern. It involves a fourfold love. It says, this is what it's all about. Worship involves these four things. This is first and foremost. You need to worship God with all of your heart. Worship God with all of your heart. And this begins by giving awe and adoration for who God is. It's expressed by believing in God and preferring him above all things on this earth. It involves praising him for who he is and what he's done in our lives. And once we start to praise him, we do the second thing. We start to worship God with all of our souls. And this encompasses our will and our emotions. Our will and our emotions are motivated. They're led to giving God the glory that he deserves. And this is by being tender to his glory and his mercy, by being zealous for his name. Because when God starts to move in our souls, when our souls are prone to loving God, we start to stand up for the faith. We start to say, God, I give you my all. God, I give you everything that I am because I know I'd be nothing without you. And this is what David did. David says, Lord, I recognize my sins, my faults, my failures, but I know that I would not be here if it wasn't for you. And so he worshiped God, not just with his heart, not just with his soul, but he also did the third thing. He worshiped God with all of his mind. With all of his mind, we worship God. And this involves a deep appreciation for who God is, a deep appreciation for what he's done in our life and being content in whatever situation that we're in. This is the hardest part of worship, being content in whatever situation you're in. Yeah, you may be dealing with financial difficulties. Maybe you have personal health issues or health issues in the family. Maybe you're struggling with a relationship or a marriage. Maybe you're on the brink of losing your job or you are looking for a job. Maybe you've got some sin in your life that is holding you down. It's chaining you down to where you don't feel like you're free. And God's saying, I want you to worship me with all of your mind. Because when you start to worship me with all of your mind, you start to confess these sins. You start to give up the difficulties of life and give them to God who has no needs and who can take care of ours. But we have to worship God with all of our minds, set our minds upon his work. And when we do that, the fourth thing naturally happens. We start to worship God with our strength. This involves action. It involves standing up. It involves doing something. It involves trusting in his abilities rather than our own. And this is done by confessing our sins and by giving God glory amongst any suffering that we may be deserving or that we may be going through. This is what David did. David was suffering. He was under oppression. He had lots of things going on, but he chose to give God the glory, to give God the worship. Well, not just his heart, not just his soul, not just his mind, but with his strength as well. Let's tangent for a moment. What's the opposite of worship? Sin. Very good. We're all awake. Sin. Sin is the opposite of worship. Sin is resentment or it's this resistance against God. When we sin, we are not worshiping the Lord. And how does sin affect us as human beings? Well, you see, the seed of sin is planted in our hearts when we're born because we live in a fallen world under fallen nature and fallen mankind. And as this seed is in our hearts, it begins to get watered into our souls based off of our emotions and our will. And it's in our soul and it starts to affect our actions. So it takes root in our mind. 
and we start to think about these things. The Bible says that no evil deed can bear fruit unless it's first rooted inside of the mind. And once it's rooted in the mind, it becomes manifested through our strengths, through the things that we do. The seed of sins planted in our hearts, watered into our souls, rooted into our minds, and shown through our strengths. But God says, you want to know how to be freed from sin? You want to know how to escape the clutches of sin? Learn to worship the Lord. Why? Because when you learn to worship the Lord, he says, I will remove that sin, that seed of sin from your heart. And once that seed of sin is gone from your heart, I will replace it with love, with understanding, with hope and care and comfort. And once that's done, that seed, that new foundation will start to move into your soul. And I will get rid of this watering of evilness that's inside of your soul. And I will fill you with the Holy Spirit, which will go before you, which will help guide you, help make you discern what you're going to do. And once you have that inside your soul, it's going to slowly start to transform your mind because your mind will now be set upon heavenly things, not things of this earth. And it says, once your mind's on heavenly things, you start to bear the fruits of the spirit, which are manifested through our strength. So even though sins in our hearts, our souls and our minds and our strength, the love of God can overpower every single one of these. You want to remove sin from your life? Learn to worship God. Learn to love God. The way to combat sin is to have this fourfold love. So what does this mean for us as Christians? Let's take a look once again at this section in Deuteronomy, but a little bit further ahead. It says, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Those words, love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. You see, we're to worship God when we sit. We're to worship God when we walk, when we stand, when we rise up, when we lie down, when we sleep. Worship is supposed to be involved in every aspect of our lives. God says worship was never meant to be just this Sunday morning experience where you come to the church, you worship God for an hour, and then you leave and you forget the presence of God in your life. You're like, yeah, I feel so close to God. I'm with the body of believers. Woo, I'm energized. And then you're at Ruby's for lunch and that's all gone. Wherever you choose to go for lunch. But we start to separate ourselves because we're not living a daily, continual life of worship. God says that corporate worship is great. He says, I want you to worship and fellowship with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But I have created you for so much more than that. He says, I want to have this personal relationship with you where we're expressing love 24-7. It's a daily experience between the two of us. That's what worship is all about. So how do we daily live a life of worship? How do we honor God with our whole being as we're trying to figure out here? The best way to summarize this is by a gentleman named Richard Baxter. Richard Baxter, he wrote an article in the late 1600s, and he called it How to Spend the Day with God. And it's a very powerful article because it walks us through the steps in which we can live this daily life for God. Listen to this. Sleep. Measure the time of your sleep appropriately so that you do not waste your precious morning hours sluggishly. Let the time of your sleep be matched to your health and to your labor, not to your laziness. First thoughts, let God have your first waking thoughts. Lift up your heart to him thankfully for the rest that you have enjoyed. Cast upon him the strength required for the day that's ahead. Praise. 
Begin your day speaking praise to the Lord. Pray a psalm to him as an expression of your own heart. Prayer. Let your prayer time be private and uninterrupted. Remember that this is the true work of the day, your prayer time. Bible reading. Set apart an early portion of your day for an intimate time in God's word. Work your way through scripture as all scripture is profitable for your soul. Family worship. Let a time of family worship be performed consistently and at a time when it's most likely for the family to be freed from interruptions. Include a time of Bible reading and discussion on what that passage meant and what you went through. Ultimate purpose. Remember your ultimate purpose. And when you set yourself to your day's work or you approach any activity in the world, let the glory of God be written on your heart in all that you do. The glory of God be written on your heart in all that you do diligence in your work. And whatever you labor, do it as unto the Lord. No matter who your supervisor is, no matter who cuts your paycheck, you ultimately work for the Lord. Temptations and things that corrupt. Be prepared for temptations and the things which corrupt you personally. Watch against them all day long. Ask the Lord to deliver you from the evil that's in your life. Purpose in your heart to flee from temptation. Meditation. When the tasks of the day enable you to be alone, focus your thoughts on God and his word. Recall the passages you read earlier and allow the fullness to penetrate your thoughts, your body. Redeeming the time. Place a high value on your time. Be careful not to waste your time as you are not to waste your money. Invest in things that will reap eternity. Eating and drinking. Eat and drink with moderation and thankfulness for health. Prevailing sins. If a temptation prevails against you and you fall into sin, especially a habitual sin, immediately lament it and confess it before God. Do it quickly, whatever the cost, for it will surely cost you more if you wait to repent it. Relationships. Remember, every relationship has its special place and its advantage for doing good and bringing glory to God. Remember to love your neighbor as yourself and be mindful of those relationships where you are the instrument of God's glory and God's purpose in someone else's life. And then closing the day. Before returning to sleep, it's wise and it's necessary to review the actions and the blessings of the day so you may be thankful for the blessings and humbled for your sins and your failures. It's necessary in order that you might renew your repentance as well as your resolve for obedience. This is how we live a daily life of worship. When we first get up with our sleep, our thoughts, our prayer, our praise, Bible reading, family, how we go to work, every aspect of our life is giving glory to God for what God has done to you, recognizing his worth and how we are so undeserving of everything that he's done for us. But the least thing that we can do is express our love to him through worship by giving him our all, every piece of us, worshiping God with all of our being. In closing, I want to give you a practical assignment. I want you to take a few moments and reflect upon your personal worship of the Lord. What does it look like? How do you define worship in the context of God? Ask him to reveal one thing that he would like to work on in your life. Think about your body. Think about your mind, your soul, and your strength. Is there any place this morning that God is tugging on saying, I want to be more involved with? He says, you're a great Christian, you're a great person, but you're still holding on to something in your life. There's still something that you're holding back and refusing to give to me because you're afraid. 
God says, you truly want to worship the Lord? You truly want to be fulfilled of all of your needs, physical, emotional, and spiritual? You truly want to feel my presence? Let it go. Give it to me and worship me with all of your being. Give me your heart. Give me your strength. Give me your soul. Give me your mind. And I will do amazing things through you. You just have to be willing. Listen to the Lord and being fresh in this area this morning. Ask him to give you the grace to make your life a daily life of worship. Don't let your worship end as soon as this service ends. Let worship pour through your life every single day and everything that you do. You join me in prayer. Father, we pray, Lord, that you just might impress on our hearts your greatness and your glory. Lord, that you would just let the thought of your complete sovereignty over all things cause us both to fear you, Lord, and to rejoice and to worship you. Lord, we ask that you just let your power and the mystery of your purpose not discourage us, but spur us on to greater faith and devotion. In our worship, let us have a settled confidence that you do all things well. God, speak to our hearts. God, speak to our souls, our mind, and our strength, Lord. Let us release the things that are holding us back today. God, we want to worship you, Lord. We want to show you how much we love you. God, we want to give you all of our being, and we pray that you just open our hearts to do so. Lord, no matter what other people may think, no matter what the world may try to do with us, Lord, we release it and we give it to you this morning. God, let our lives reflect a daily act of worship to you. We love you, God. We love you so much more than we could ever possibly describe. And Lord, we choose from this day forward to live our lives solely dedicated to you. We love you, Lord, and we give you this in your holy name.